0: Welcome to the Best Player Wins podcast, where we believe that winning is winning, no matter by how little or by how much. We are your hosts. I am Nate Endres, hosting alongside Jake Deemer, And welcome in for episode three of our Fantasy Baseball podcast here on the Best Player Wins series. So today we're going to be giving our first prior week recap, obviously bringing our first matchup to a close in the extended 10-day window. We're going to give you guys a top three standings update for each division after the first two weeks. And again, we have that second matchup where you're playing against uh, the whole league in effect, where the top six scores get a win. The bottom six scores take a loss for that second matchup. We will update, update you on that. And today we're excited because the main portion of our episode is going to be talking about week one overreactions, or I guess I should say whether we think the statements that we've put together are overreactions or not based on our first matchup. So Jake, let's jump into it. Uh, Who did you have, or I should say, which matchup did you have as your biggest upset after our first matchup? And I want to caveat by saying, how can we really know what's an upset, you know, when you haven't really seen how teams stack up throughout the season, but just based on your gut feeling, heading into the season, which matchup did you have as the biggest upset coming out of week number one?
1: So for the most part, I think that the better teams at that point, their first matchups, but I did pick Sam versus Jordan, probably for the only reason that we both picked Jordan for this one. Um, but I do think that we both maybe underrated Sam's team. Uh, I thought that Jordan had pretty good matchup, had a pretty good matchup advantage, but um Sam's team was over to, was able to overcome that. And he actually, I think he looks like a pretty serious contender moving forward.
0: So I actually had the same biggest upset of Sam over Jordan uh, for the same reason that you did, because it was one of only two that I got wrong in our matchup predictions from last week's episode. But I'll actually pivot to the other selection that I got wrong. I picked Andrew to beat Brendan and Brendan not only beat Andrew, but he ended up going two and oh by being a top six scorer out of 12 in our league. So Brendan kind of shattered the expectations that I had of his team when I made the bold prediction last week that he might finish as a bottom four team and miss playoffs this year by, again, not only beating Andrew, but showing that he was a strong team in this first matchup by scoring in the top half of the league. So uh, I, I think my expectations for Brendan's team have definitely changed a little bit. I wouldn't necessarily swing to the opposite side and say that he has one of the strongest teams, despite being one of just a few that are two and O coming out of this first matchup, but they definitely have changed my expectations. I think Brendan, I guess I should have expected this from the beginning. Cause we've known for three to four years now that Brendan is always a fighter, but his team might outproduce its talent yet again this year. So that would be my biggest upset, most shocking outcome. On the other hand, I have JC who crushed big money Mike. Um, This is, I shouldn't say it's most shocking to me, but uh, when I did predict that JC would beat Mike last week on his way to scoring the most points in the league through our first matchup, uh, he absolutely delivered on that prediction. So that part isn't so shocking to me. However, the part that was really surprising was Mike's really measly performance over the entire matchup. Now I'll preface this by saying that Mike lost a heavy hitting trio of Cabrian Hayes, Cattell Marte and Fernando Tatis Jr. early in the matchup. However, I don't really think his hitting was nearly as much to blame as his pitching was. Um, Mike basically combined for a dismal sub 60 point performance out of his total pitching staff Um, getting just around 50 total points from his five starting pitchers and just around five total points from his entire bullpen. Mind you, nobody in particular had one bombshell of a game or two that absolutely sunk Mike's team. And when I say a bombshell of a game, think Anthony Bass from my team who put up negative 31 points in this matchup. Mike just got bad performances pretty much across the board except a total of three starts between Walker Bueller and – Brandon Woodruff that were just pretty good. Um, as in even these guys didn't light the world on fire, despite being Mike's staff aces. Now, while I expect Mike to bounce back as his guys get healthy and Altuve comes in to replace Marte, uh, again, the offense was not the problem. As I mentioned, I think Mike will have to continue to monitor his pitching staff and make improvements pretty quickly. If, if, uh, if they're not able to turn things around, Jake, what did you have for the most shocking outcome?
1: Yeah, sorry, that same thing, but it was only because of the margin of victory. Um, I also I did pick Mike to win this matchup, but I expected it to be a close game either way. Um, these were two teams that I think we both liked a lot. We both picked them to be leading their divisions early on, uh, but this ended up being the most lopsided matchup. Um, yeah, I I mean that the injuries to the trio of hitters that you mentioned kind of crippled Mike's offense, but like you said, the pitcher the pitching was really the problem last week but I still think he has a good staff I don't know that he really needs to blow it up
0: yeah and that's why I said I think he just needs to continue to monitor it and and see if these guys can bounce back because I think Bueller and Woodruff are a great one-two combo Uh, so I don't think it should be a point of weakness relative to the rest of the league but I guess we'll see how it develops here in these next one to two matchups but that brings us into our top three standings update for each division. So in the East Division, we have JC absolutely crushing his way to the number one seed. He is two and zero and definitely uh, made a strong made a strong statement coming into the season by putting up the most points in the league by quite a bit. Uh, right behind him in the East Division is Jake's Fantasy Baseball team, also two and zero. He beat me this week and also topped the league median point total by a healthy margin. And then coming in at third in the East division is Jordan's team, Keiko and the Cucks. They finished one and one. They lo- he lost to Sam's team TP prez, but he did still manage to finish in the top six scorers in the league. So West division, we have three teams at the top that all finished two and O for the week. We have team C Deemer, Courtney's team. She also put up a really strong performance This past week and I think she was what the number two scorer in the league does that sound right Jake
1: yeah she still has the Braves hitters going right now so I mean there's a chance she could beat JC not likely but sure
0: and then as we just mentioned Sam beat Jordan he also scored in the top six scores for the league and he got he uh, finished the week with a 2-0 record and then again my surprise pick Brendan's team he ended up beating Andrew as well as just barely beating uh, the threshold of the league median, which I think I was the seventh team. So I would have had to score, I want to say 15 or 20 more points to kind of be the number six team and bump Brendan from this spot. But he ended up beating me out and earned a two and record because of it. So congrats to everyone that is sitting atop the top three in their divisions heading into week number two. Jake, let's talk about some week one overreactions. I'm excited for this segment. We basically did one overreaction per team, and it could relate either to the team overall or in most of the cases that you'll hear, it relates to a specific player on someone's team. So I kind of just started in the order of the standings uh, for the entire league. So let's start with JC's team. And the, the statement that I kind of put together for this segment is, Another week of a similar performance will render Keston Hira as an unquestionable drop. Jake, do you think that this is a week one overreaction or not?
1: I'm going to say it is an overreaction because it it would take me a longer period of time to consider a guy like Hira as a drop, even with the poor performance. But I will say there's really no denying how poorly he's looked uh, through this first week. His K percentage is up over 40%, which is as bad as it was last year. This year so far, it's been even worse. Uh, players in our format have to hit really well to survive even a 30% strikeout rate. But a 40% strikeout rate, in my opinion, really makes someone unstartable in our format. Uh, it's too early, it's too early for me to say he's droppable. But uh, it's definitely worrying considering how highly he was drafted. And I think this is a situation where you pretty much have to leave him on the bench until he brings that strikeout rate down.
0: Yeah, I'm going to say it is not an overreaction. So you mentioned that uh, it's too early to say if his performance is going to sustain itself. I guess I should say very negatively sustain itself. But going back to, to the abbreviated 2020 season, he was an unstartable player. Um, so this isn't necessarily just something new that we're seeing in the first week of the 2021 season. It was the entirety of the shortened 2020 season but moving on to so far this year, entering today, Kessen Hero was batting only 107 with a 138 on base percentage, both of which are absolutely dismal. And when you consider that his prospect pedigree was first and foremost attributed to his hit tool, which, for those of you that may not be familiar, is the ability to hit for a high average, um, combined with pretty good power skill set, which, That also hasn't come in either this year. He only has one home run and 48 plate appearances entering today. Those two things not being there, there's pretty much nothing left to be excited about in Kesson here's profile if the advertised skills from his minors career aren't coming to fruition. Now, if you combine all of that with the fact that, like you mentioned, Jake, he's striking out an insane 43% of the time through his first 48 at bats in a league that penalizes strikeouts, you have yourself an offensive black hole. And unfortunately, with where J.C. drafted him, there is virtually a zero chance of keeper potential, even as a second baseman, because he would come at a cost of a fourth-round pick next year. So for me, given the performance and the lack of any potential keeper value, I think Hira is a drop if he does not turn things around in a in a hurry. Uh, I almost said in a Hira, here, Hiri. Here, <laughs> but let's move on from Keston Hira to courtney's team and let's talk a little bit about joe musgrove the the first pitcher to throw a no hitter in 2021 so jake joe musgrove is now a bona fide top 20 starting pitcher is this a week one overreaction or not
1: i'm gonna say it is but not by much uh he's absolutely a top 30 starter for me he's probably pushing top 25 at this point Um, I don't know why we ever doubted leaving the Pirates always seems to lead to a very successful outcome for a starting pitcher. Uh, But the breakout really did truly start last year. Um, He's following a similar path to the other former Pirates pitchers after they left Pittsburgh, which is ditching that stupid two seam sinker that they have them throw and throwing more breaking pitches more often that that usually induces more swings and misses. Uh, He has a strong arsenal of those pitches. He has a cutter slider and curveball. So really, if one isn't working on a particular day, he has other offerings he can turn to. Uh, I think this should lead to some consistency for him, and I do think that he has the ability to hit 180 innings. Uh, The ingredients are there for him to to be a top-20 pitcher. Um, I'm just not ready to say that he is for sure yet.
0: I come on the other side. I say it is not an overreaction, and my reason why is, as many Pirates fans know, Musgrove has always had a high ceiling and as with many pitchers the pirates simply were not the organization that was going to unlock his potential um you know this may seem like an overreaction on account of this statement directly following a no-hitter which is not likely to happen again but the most impressive indicator to me that musgrove that the musgrove breakout has arrived is the change in pitch mix like you mentioned in friday night's no-hitter joe musgrove only needed 112 pitches to pitch very nearly a perfect game he only hit one batter, I think, in like the fourth inning. Other than that, it was a perfect game. But in said no-hitter, Joe Musgrove only threw his fastball eight total times, which was the fewest in any start of his career. Rather, his curve, slider, and cutter accounted for about 80% of his pitches. And if you compare that to a definite bona fide ace in his teammate, Hugh Darvish, who has a 311 ERA in a 0.96, or I should just say 0.96 whip over his last 37 starts, which technically comprises the last two full seasons since the 2020 season was extremely abbreviated. And you also note that comparison between Musgrove and you Darvish, with the fact that Darvish throws his cutter about 40% of the time, you can start to see the effect that Musgrove's new organization and teammates are having on him already. I think Musgrove is going to continue to turn into a surefire top 20 pitcher through his performances all season, um, just through the likes of having you Darvish and Blake Snell to learn from there in San Diego. So I come on the other side of that, but it sounds like you're not too far off from agreeing with me, Jake. So
1: no, I'm just, I'm just, I guess I'm being a little more cautious with it. I'm not ready to be in there yet, but I, I definitely, it would not surprise me in the slightest if he's, a top 20 pitcher going forward. Sure.
0: Third one, Jake from your team, Vladimir Guerrero junior We'll finish as a top three first baseman. Is this a week one overreaction or not? And feel free to
1: let your bias show. Oh, it's going to show. Cause I don't think this is an overreaction at all. And a lot of this is, I, I actually had him ranked fourth at the position coming into the year. So this isn't really far off from where I had him anyways. Um, but the early results have been uh, very encouraging. The launch angle was really the biggest thing I think standing in the way of a breakout. And it's up to 16 degrees from 4.6 degrees last year, which the optimal launch angle is usually somewhere between like 10 and 30 degrees. Uh, but his low launch angle was kind of negating the exit velocities he had because he was driving all that into the ground. Now those are all turning into line drives. Uh, it's a small sample, but I really do think that the breakouts here for Vlad and he, he walks enough and he doesn't strike out a whole lot. So uh, he's kind of an optimal player for this format.
0: Yeah. And I'm going to sound like a broken record, maybe taking it into a little bit more detail, but Vladdy has brought everything into the 2021 season that was advertised throughout his toward career in the minor leagues. Um, So far on the young season, he ranks above the 80th percentile in K percentage expected slugging percentage, Walk percentage, and he ranks above the 90th percentile in expected batting average, expected weighted on base average, and maximum exit velocity. So he is absolutely, like he really always has, crushing the ball. Uh, Basically, what Vlad did this past offseason is he went back to his contact heavy approach that made him a generational prospect in the minors, and it's paid dividends so far. He's, you know, yielding a top two rank at the first base position so far. But as you mentioned, The most important stat that I'm seeing that validates to me that the breakout is finally here is the change in launch angle for Vlad. Uh, This has been the primary issue for the last few years with him. Keep in mind, uh, we say the last few years, the kid is only 22 years old, but his MLB career average launch angle entering this season was only 5.7 degrees, which basically means that Vlad was exclusively hitting liners and ground balls. Um, but with the raw power skill set that Vlad has, as he displayed in that 2019 Home Run Derby, that I think what he did was more impressive than the winner, Pete Alonso. But regardless, the key for him has always been getting the launch angle up. And this year he has de- he's done just that by hitting balls at an average launch angle of 16 degrees, essentially converting to more of a fly ball hitter than a line drive hitter. So I think the kid has finally arrived. I think he's going to be a top three first baseman, I would say that that is not
1: an overreaction. Is this a win for the best shape of their life club, though?
0: I it might be. I don't really know what launch angle would have to do with being in better shape, but who's to I don't say know. I just done. heard that
1: he was I just heard he was showing up to spring training in the best shape of his life. Well, it's it's documented. He lost like
0: forty-two pounds over the offseason, so he definitely has been in the best shape over the last five years or so showing up to the to spring training this year he was in the best shape in recent memory but let's talk about a guy that you and i have already given love to over the past few episodes that is on sam's team aaron savale uh statement i have for him is he will be the best pitcher for the 2021 cleveland indians jake is this an overreaction or not
1: Uh, It's only an overreaction because we're forgetting that Shane, we're assuming in this statement that Shane Bieber doesn't exist, I guess. But, uh, but I think that he could be the second best Cleveland starter. Uh, He hasn't done anything to really change my mind about why I was excited about him coming into the year. Uh, The new arm slot seems to be working and he's carried over a lot of the gains from last season. But I think that the biggest thing is we've seen so far, Terry Francona is going to let him go deep into games. He's just going to kind of let him go out there and roll. So, He's going to rack up those. He's going to rack up innings. He's probably going to get a lot of volume. And uh, with the new arm slot, the results seem to be there too. So I am pretty excited about him for, for this year. I think Sam's got a pretty good keeper there.
0: Yeah. And I did write this statement knowing full well that Shane Bieber is his teammate in the rotation. But I also called this an overreaction because first sentence in my description is Shane Bieber still exists, right? He's already been the best pitcher in the American league, let alone Definitely on his own team. Um, I love what I've seen from Savali so far, but I I think I would take Shane Bieber as the best Indians pitcher all the way until the moment that he's very clearly not anymore. That's how much faith I think I have in Bieber and the skill set that he's shown over the last season and a half. It's worth noting, uh, I think I've already mentioned this, but it's worth noting that Jake and I and Sam, because he's the one that, that decided to keep Savali, can definitely take an early victory lap on Savali as he has started the season as starting pitcher number four overall through the first matchup. And that was coming into today. So again, we all love what we see from Aaron Savale, but I think, uh, I think it's going to be tough to be the best pitcher on his own team. As long as, as long as AL Cy Young winner, Shane Bieber is there as well. Let's talk about Brendan who made a, a pick that I brushed off during the keeper expansion draft. But so far, it is looking like it may have been the best pick of the keeper expansion draft. Let's talk about Byron Buxton. The hot take that I have, or that I wrote, after week one is that Byron Buxton will finish as a top three center fielder this season on a per-game basis. Jake, is this an overreaction or not?
1: Uh, Let me first start by saying that this is just such a Brendan pick. For the keeper draft, like we all brushed it off like it was nothing, but now it's turning into uh, possibly the best pick. Like you said, Uh, that's just a a really Brendan. That seems like really on brand for, for Brendan in this league so far, but I'm going to say it's not an overreaction actually. Uh, He's currently at the top of the stack has leaderboard in nearly every contact metric. Uh, He's racking up some crazy exit velocities and he's fast enough that he can stretch some of those gap shots to extra bases or beat out some singles. Uh, strikeouts and health have kind of been his shortcomings throughout his career. Um, And while I do still doubt that he can stay healthy, just kind of given his track record, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that he takes a step forward as a contact hitter. And really this also comes down to the position too, because center field isn't exactly uh, the deepest position out there. So I don't know that it would really take a lot to finish top three in terms of points per game. Uh, Buxton definitely has always been a really toolsy guy. And he has the he's a former top prospect. Uh, It's really not out of the realm of possibility that he takes a step forward, even kind of this. It's weird to say this late in in his career because he's so he's still pretty young. But I mean, he has been around forever. But I definitely think that he could be taking a step forward and we could be seeing a little Buxton breakout here.
0: I would agree that this is not an overreaction. Uh, Byron Buxton's skill set has long been salivated over by many in the fantasy industry, but the dude, like you said, has never been able to stay healthy um, as he has done plenty of times before Buxton is showing everyone a glimpse of why he is worth taking a shot on every single year in the, in fantasy drafts, despite disappointing managers so many times with injuries and, um, But as we're seeing right now, when he's on the field, the guy is absolutely electric with his ability to hit for power and steal bases, all while having a good plate approach. He has coming into today. He only had two strikeouts with five walks on the young season, Um, combining that with four home runs that he's hit already and a stolen base. And he's boasting a ridiculous 1587 on base plus slugging. Yeah, this guy is really good. And he's going to be a stud for Brendan anytime he's in the lineup. So I would say that this is not an overreaction. Talk about another player uh, that's that hasn't had a shaky in, or as shaky of an injury history, but has definitely been in the same conversation of the tools are there to be an absolutely elite player, but we haven't seen him put it all together necessarily just yet. And I'm talking about Tyler Glass now on Jordan's team, Keiko and the Cucks. So what the potential overreaction statement is is Tyler Glasnow is finally taking the next step and will enter next season as a bona fide SP1, i.e., a top twelve starting pitcher, ranked among all pitchers. Jake, is this an
1: overreaction or not? I don't think that this is an overreaction. Uh Glasnow's stuff was filthy to begin with. Uh, he had the highest case per nine in the AL last year if he qualified. And he ranked in the 80th percentile or better in just about every single swinging strike strike rate metric. Uh, So hitting glass now was already tough to do. Then he showed up in spring training and decided that he wasn't content with being only a two pitch pitcher anymore. And he decided, hey, I'm going to start throwing a slider. Now, he has done this before where he's kind of introduced a third pitch in the spring. I think last year was the year where he tried to introduce a splitter. And uh, I think he's dabbled with a change up in the past. But both of those were abandoned pretty early on, and I don't think he ever really used either one of them consistently in the regular season. But through two starts, this has been a way different with this slider. He's used it a lot more consistently in spring. Uh, he looks a lot more comfortable with it. Um, and he's comfortable enough with it that it's his most used secondary pitch because he's throwing it about 35% of the time even ahead of his curveball. Uh, he's getting results with it too because he's able to throw it for strikes and he's getting whiffs on it. It's setting up the curveball really nicely. And now batters have a third pitch that they have to worry about. Uh, with Glass now, just because of his build, I think that walks are always going to be somewhat of an issue. Uh, it's really hard to repeat your mechanics when you're as big and tall as he is. Uh, but he's shown improvement through two starts, and I think that as long as he keeps that under maybe three and a half, uh, I think he'll be okay with that. The only thing I could see holding him back from top twelve status even this year uh, is really is just the Rays and their kind of wacky pitching strategies. So. I'm definitely in on glass now, uh, both for this year and for next year. And not to mention too,
0: like I mentioned, he is not as injury prone as Byron Buxton, but Tyler glass now has had his share of, of a handful of injuries. So maybe that could sneak up and kind of put a damper on a really exciting season from him. But obviously none of us are wishing that for Tyler glass. Now you'd think that Jake and I kind of did our analysis prep together, because I'm going to talk about a lot of the same things that Jake did, um, starting with the fact that Tyler glass now has, has always been looked at as having a super high ceiling, but also a relatively low floor due to his primarily two pitch arsenal that, that Jake briefly touched on. Um, but this off season, just like Jake said, Tyler glass now developed a new pitch, which in effect is a slider, but it's a slider that cuts away, <laughs> At a pretty ridiculous angle late in the quote unquote life of the pitch, as they say, which simply means that the the pitch has a lot of movement as it gets really close to the plate, which makes it nearly impossible for hitters to read and adjust to the pitch as it's coming. Since they already only have fractions of a second to read a pitch if they see it well out of a pitcher's hand. Um, so you can imagine if the ball is moving late in the pitch as it's coming closer to the plate, it kind of makes the pitch unhittable. Um. This slider-cutter combo pitch, which the baseball community has kind of endeared with the the name Slutter, uh, it's it's made Tyler Glass now basically unhittable in combination with his curveball and a fastball that touches triple digits. So far, it's led to a 11.25 K per nine, a 0.75 ERA, backed by a 138 FIP, which stands for Fielding Independent Pitching which is basically just a, me- a measure of how good a pitcher is throwing regardless of the defense behind them. Uh, also a 0.58 whip and a nasty 15 strikeouts to two walks to start the season uh, through two starts for Tyler Glassnow. I don't see anything in these performances that would suggest that Glassnow is getting lucky. So I think we're seeing him take the next step and somehow continue to prove that the Chris Archer trade can in fact get worse. So Tyler Glass now, a lot to be excited about in fantasy, uh, a lot to mourn about as a Pirates fan. (laughs) Let's move on to Andrew's team. Uh, This one, Jake called it boring to me before we started recording tonight, but he is a force that will not go away. So I think that he warrants mentioning here. Nelson Cruz, 40-year-old Nelson Cruz, will be a top 20 hitter overall in 2021 jake is this a week one overreaction based on
1: him just absolutely crushing everything
0: coming his way or is it not
1: all right you made it sound like i really hate nelson cruz i think that he's fine like he's just but at the end of the day like he's a 40 year old utility bat he's great but he's still a 40 year old utility bat that's only so useful but uh, i mean i think this is a little bit of an overreaction just because again he's a 40 year old and he's uh I don't really trust him to stay healthy all year, I guess, but uh, really, this is not really knock on his uh, on his on-field performance. Uh, my argument is in no way backed up by his numbers. And I will fully admit that uh, he's 97th percentile or better in stat cast quality of contract metrics. Um, the man is simply a beast as a hitter. And <laughs> I, I really can't argue based on numbers that he will not be a top 20 hitter. I guess, I am admittedly a little bit of an ageist in fantasy, and I I can't back a I can't back somebody that old to be a t- to be a top twenty hitter when there are so many more elite hitters that are that are a lot younger. You can't back
0: somebody that could literally be your dad. <laughs> uh, I fall on the same side. No disrespect to Nelly Cruz, he is an ageless wonder and an unquestionably elite hitter. I just think the profile he carries, which is all plate discipline and power, limits his ability to be one of the absolute best of the best. And usually only few hitters uh, are the exception to that rule. Like think Juan Soto and Bryce Harper. Those guys don't steal a ton of bases, but they are the elite of the elite, Um, kind of unquestionable top 20 hitters in fantasy. I just don't see nelson cruz putting up the ridiculous numbers that some of those guys who are like the faces of baseball do each year um he could certainly prove me wrong but i think that nelson cruz will live more in like the top 30 to 35 range as a hitter still providing an elite performance and a very good return on investment for andrew uh, but top 20 is a little steep and i typically am conservative with you know prescribing that kind of grade because again i think it's the elite of the elite that we know in in draft super early every year like the bellingers the yelliches the harpers the Sotos, but then it also leaves room for the breakout hitters that come out of nowhere each year so i I just think that he'll get kind of squeezed out of that top 20 um, similar to what he does every year i think he's pretty much a top 30 35 hitter every year so don't expect much difference from him this year
1: i think you got to keep in mind too he's a he's only going to play designated hitter he's not going to play the field so anytime they're in a national league park he's probably not going to be maybe he'll get a pinch hit appearance but volume matters too in this format so uh, he won't be playing as much as those other guys anyways even if he stays healthy all year
0: yeah that's a good point that's definitely a good point my eighth team that i looked at was pine run market next team and this is a team prediction uh, we didn't focus on a player here jake I think, or I shouldn't say I think, but the statement that I have is Nick will have his 2022. So next season is 2022 starting rotation set in place by our 2021 trade deadline. He'll have all five guys locked, loaded, and ready to go. Is this a week one overreaction
1: or not? So I don't think this is an overreaction. This is really interesting to me, but Nick has started to gather keepers, and I think he has the right idea going going to try to get potential stud pitchers. I don't know if it'll work out where he wants to keep every pitcher he gets, but you have a better chance of landing four or five if you trade for a lot. So this is, I think the reason I think this is interesting is I don't think anybody's really done this before where they've kind of taken just a volume approach with starting pitchers in hopes that a couple of them hit. But in theory, I guess, I mean, it makes sense to me. You have a better chance you have a better shot at landing a couple studs. If you, Kind of cast a wider net, so to speak. So I'll be interested to see how it turns out because I, again, I don't think anybody's ever done this before. And this would be a maybe a new strategy that people would implement if it works.
0: Yeah, I fall on the same side. I do not think that this is an overreaction. Nick has already gathered three guys who are virtually locked into his future rotation as keepers uh, based on their minimal cost in Chris Sale, Mike Clevenger, and Framber Valdez. I don't think it's totally crazy to suggest that Pablo Lopez or even Trevor Rogers, who I just dropped and Nick claimed could each or maybe even one of them turn into a keepable pitcher themselves. Uh, I have little doubt that Nick is going to keep trying to add keeper pitchers. Uh, Maybe he goes out and gets just one or two more. Maybe he continues with his strategy that you highlighted, which is casting a wide net. Uh, But based on the trade that he and I made during week one, yeah, I don't think that this is an overreaction. I don't think that he makes that trade unless he is going to aggressively target um, specifically starting pitching. So don't think that that's an overreaction. Let's talk about my team briefly. And, and as a result of the trade that I just mentioned with me and Nick, let's talk about Marcelo Zuna. The statement is Marcelo Zuna will prove to be an average at best starter at left field struggling to crack even the top six at the left field position in 2021. Jake, is this an overreaction based on week one or not?
1: I think it is. I I didn't really have any concerns about Ozuna coming into the year, and he didn't show anything last year that I thought, well, that's probably going to be problematic moving forward. He didn't really have any of that. So it is kind of hard for me to call him, in, in effect, what this would be. I think his, this would be calling him a bust. I don't think I can do that after a week when – um, I didn't really have anything to be concerned about coming into the year. I don't think he'll perform like he did last year, but I, I don't think that that was ever the expectation for him coming into this year. Uh, but this is sort of my thing about a lot of a lot of players after one week is it's the time for uh, um, confirmation bias, and if if I see a guy that is doing the things that I thought maybe he would be doing coming into the year, like a Vlad. So I'm more intent, I'm more um, more likely to believe that because I that's something that maybe we saw last year they needed to fix. We saw him in spring training, he was fixing it, and now he's doing it this year. So I'm more inclined to believe that. With Marcelo Zuna, I didn't see anything last year or anything in spring training that would have caused me to think that he's not still top six at the position. So I I, I wouldn't call him that after one week.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting thought to bring into the conversation, the the whole confirmation bias beyond this overreaction segment. uh, I definitely think that that probably exists in all fantasy managers early in the season uh, where, just like you said, if you have uh, an idea of what a player is or what you think they will do in the coming season and they kind of do that to start, most people kind of take that and run with it, just like you said. They're like, yep, I was right about that guy. Uh so yeah, it's definitely an interesting way to kind of or I should say an interesting factor to recognize within yourself as you kind of make decisions and analyze over the first few weeks of the season. I fall on the same side of <laughs> we've kind of agreed over these last I want to say four or five statements, but I agree with you here. This is an overreaction. I think Marcelo Zuna has proven to be a streaky hitter whose lows can definitely hurt as we have seen over the first matchup. But his highs have, have, he's shown us that he could be a top 10 hitter in baseball over stretches. We've seen down performances as a whole for entire seasons from Ozuna before, but they've mainly coincided with injuries or changes of scenery as he's been traded or moved, moved around to different teams a few times. But Marcel Ozuna was absolutely elite in 2020 and has been elite previous to that. And nothing about his approach, his approach or his batted ball profile, like you mentioned, has changed. So I think that this is simply a case of the entire Atlanta offense, basically besides Acuna starting out slow. And Ozuna and Ozzy Albies looking the worst among the team after this slow start. I just think that those two guys kind of got the worst of the slow start. So I'm not totally worried about Marcel Ozuna. I don't know that he's going to be a like top two left fielder like he was last year. That was a pretty crazy performance. But I think it's pretty safe to say that my expectation would definitely be top five at the position. So I think that's an overreaction on the other side, somebody that is absolutely lighting the world on fire to start the year. Corbin Burns out of Jerwin's team, testicular Torkelson statement. Corbin Burns will be a national league Cy Young finalist in 2021. Jake, is this a week one overreaction or not?
1: Uh, Not at all. All of the improvements he made last year look like they stuck. Uh, he's throwing his cutter even harder than last year, if you can believe that. And both his slider, both that and his slider are just absolutely ridiculous whiff pitches. Uh, when he's on the mound, he's a top 10 pitcher, probably no question. I think he's going to make Jarwin a very happy person moving forward. Like with Glass now, I think he would be also be top 12 for me. If you could tell me that he was going to pitch like around 180 innings, but I think the Brewers already came out and said they're going to be conservative with their starters. So I think probably finish about 20 or 30 innings short of that. 2022, though, I think that's going to be the year of Corbin Burns. So uh, all the opponents, all the opponents better watch out.
0: Yeah, that was a nice segue into the reason why I am going to call this an overreaction. This I totally agree with the skills, uh, the fact that on a per inning basis, he is unquestionably a an SP one, a top 12 starter, probably a top 10 starter, like you said. This comes down to one thing and one thing only for me in 2021, volume. Uh, While Corbin Burns threw 145 innings in 2017, that was his career high, and followed it up with a 116 inning 2018, which is not a high figure, but high enough for the minors to have little concern about volume progression as he would make his major league debut. He has only thrown a total... Of 170 innings over the last three years combined, coming into 2021. Now, part of that is due to the shortened 2020, the shortened 2020 season, which all pitchers experienced. But this kind of workload is dangerous to push a pitcher to ace level workloads with, especially directly following a season in which he only pitched 59 innings. While you again might suggest that the same can be said of most pitchers in the league, I think Corbin Burns, especially is susceptible to either workload management or injury based on the fact that he has averaged less than 60 innings pitched for each of the last three years. He legitimately looks like a top five to 10 pitcher when he's on the mound. I'm just not totally sure I can see him maxing out above 150 innings pitch this season, which could certainly be enough volume if he is as good as he's shown so far in every single one of his starts moving forward to earn an L. Cy Young finalist consideration, but I think he would basically have to be perfect, um, to only throw like 145 to 150 innings and get, you know, be, be an NL Cy Young finalist. So I say it's an overreaction, not based on the skills, but just based on the volume. Let's talk about another young pitcher who, uh, I think he's kind of become controversial or polarizing in the fantasy community. I think you either love, or you hate this guy in terms of fantasy baseball, specifically Chris Paddock uh, statement is Chris Paddock will finish outside the top 35 starting pitchers this season. Jake, is this a week one overreaction? He, he had two starts. I don't know if you saw his numbers for both starts. They were not good in either, but is this a week one overreaction or not?
1: Uh, sadly, I do not think this is an overreaction. Uh, the bottom line is that fastball is not okay. All the talk during the spring about improving the spin rate on his fastball has not really worked out so far. The spin rate is almost identical to 2020 on that pitch. Uh, Really what what happened last year was the spin rate, I believe it decreased, and it basically changed how the pitch moved and it turned it into a much more hittable pitch. And uh, really without a third one, the changeup has to be elite or he's going to get hit around every game. Uh, The Padres don't really seem inclined to let him work deep into games either. I mean, not really that he's deserved to do so so far, but still, if they've not They haven't, they've pulled him, I think, yesterday or whenever he pitched last at maybe 74 pitches. Uh, so far, this looks like the 2020 version of Paddock and the options the Padres have at starting pitcher and the fact that they want to contend this year. I'm not totally confident the Padres will let him work through his struggles and try to find the form he had in 2019. So the 2020 version of Chris Paddock is absolutely not a top 35 starting pitcher, and that's exactly who... He's been so far this year
0: yeah I'm glad you approached it with uh from that angle of the Padres may not give him a long leash because they are exceptionally deep both in rotation and in their bullpen um and we haven't even seen Denelson Lamette, Ryan Weathers and number one pitching prospect in baseball Mackenzie Gore enter the rotation yet those are kind of the guys that could be waiting in the wings uh, for Chris Paddock to falter and, and then be given an opportunity by the Padres if they were decide if they were to decide to take Paddock out of the rotation, I agree that it is not an overreaction because well, Paddock wasn't on my draft board for either the keeper expansion draft or for the regular draft this year. I simply did not like the combination of his two pitch arsenal, his hittable fastball, and the inflated draft cost associated with his name and age. In two starts this year, Paddock has not fared well against a so-so Diamondbacks lineup and a Rangers lineup lacking any kind of pedigree. Um, I kind of heard the same thing that you had heard, which is a lot of people were getting excited about Paddock this offseason because he had apparently decided to finally start embracing analytics. He was always a guy that I guess ignored analytics before this past offseason. He wanted to start embracing them to improve his fastball after it was very bad in 2020, like you mentioned. But unfortunately for Chris Paddock, his fastball has continued to be extremely hittable, where in his most recent start against the Rangers, it was crushed at least four times at exit velocities over 97 miles per hour, three of which were over 103 miles per hour. Jake, would you care to translate, which I think you've already said, what does this mean for Chris Paddock's fastball?
1: Okay, you're talking about the spin rate, like what?
0: I'm just talking about the performance against the hitters that he's faced in his first two starts so far, um, compounding that with the, the exit velocities of contact made against that pitch so far.
1: Yeah, basically batters are, he's leaving it over the plate. Batters are hitting it very, very, very hard, and they're not having any trouble doing so. But basically what the, what's happening with his fastball is he's not getting as much spin on it, so he's not getting sort of the, almost like the rising effect a little bit more of a run on it, and it's causing it to be put over the heart of the plate a little bit more. And because he doesn't have a third pitch, it's really just he's just fastball changeup, like you said. So if that changeup is not elite, if it's not elite on that even on that given day, all he has is the fastball to fall back on, and we are we see that the fastball is not good.
0: Yeah, it's not good, and even if he did have an elite changeup, you need a fastball to set up the changeup. You can't just throw a changeup all game. The hitters are going to start to catch on. This is very troublesome for a two-pitch pitcher when one of his two pitches absolutely stinks. Uh, So hope for Eddie's sake that he can turn it around, but as of right now, I think that he might not be a startable pitcher.
1: There's been talk of him, too, including a curveball, but it's – I feel like we've been talking about a potential curveball for two years now, and I believe he's thrown it two percent of the time so far. Like it's not anything more than a show me pitch, and I, I you can't you can't count on that. So he need he really needs a third pitch, or he at the very least he needs to fix that fastball, and probably probably needs to do it pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, our last overreaction statement of our third episode coming out of week one. It is a team-based statement, and it is with Big Money Mike's team. The statement is, Mike will ultimately decide to sell at the trade deadline. Is this an overreaction based on the whooping that JC put on him in week one, or is it not?
1: I think it is. Um, he's made some trades, so his roster's a little different than when I said in the first podcast that I liked it the best coming out of the draft. Uh, and he does have he does still have quite a few injuries, but... Um, this is, this is at the end of the day, this roster is not going to look the same as it is now. We know that Mike's going to wheel and deal, uh, whether that turns out well or whether it doesn't, um, there's still plenty of time to turn it around. And I'm not really ready to jump ship yet after I said that I really liked his team and his roster. I still do. I, I I do have faith that Michael have plenty of time to turn it around. I
0: agree. It's not an overreaction. And just like you said, Big money, Mike. He's got his name for a reason. He's going to wheel and deal. Mike's team, while it performed among the worst in the league during our first matchup, is still very good at its core, as Jake and I mentioned during last week's episode. Uh, I think he's gotten really unlucky through a combination of bad injuries and his ace pitchers not necessarily carrying the load the way that some others have across our other teams. I think Mike This is going to sound a little drastic, but I think Mike is going to bounce back by the end of May. And I say that in the sense that I think he's going to be among the top of the standings by the end of May after starting out 0-2. May might seem like a conservative timeline for a bounce back like that, but I think Tatis Jr. getting healthy is going to be a key for his team's performance. Uh, Nonetheless, I think even if it took until the end of May, I think that's still plenty of time him to gear up as a buyer ready to push his chips in the middle of the table to try to make a championship run at the deadline. So yes, I think that suggesting that Mike will be a seller at the deadline is a week one overreaction. So now that we've talked in a lot of detail about week one and and the performances, what implications they might have on hitters or how they could cause some overreactions, let's jump into our second matchup preview. Let's, uh, Jake, give me your best matchup or what you would expect to be the best matchup coming in. I'm going to first
1: start by saying that, uh, the league history fact of the week is that, um, this will be the rubber match between Sam and Courtney. Uh, they're four and four all time. And that, that includes the playoffs. Uh, but this is, this will be the rubber match. And this is my best matchup of the week because this one is for first place in the West. Um, each had a very strong week one. Uh, they, Courtney's team kind of looks like, just not to sugarcoat it, her team looks like an absolute juggernaut right now. I think it'll be a tall task for Sam to beat her with the way that the offense is rolling and even with the way that the pitching is rolling too. But he's coming off what I, what I think we both called an upset and we've after we both picked Jordan to win. But regardless of what happens, the matchup itself should be a banger after these two both scored really highly week one and I think it'll probably be the highest scoring matchup of the week. So that's my, that's my best matchup this week.
0: Yeah. I like that matchup pick. I went in a different direction and it may just be because of my predictions from last week's episode, but I chose big money, Mike versus Cleveland white males, uh, Mike versus Brendan. So after proving me wrong in different ways during the first matchup, my expectations for each of these two teams haven't totally changed, but, uh, you know, I'm still expecting some regression for both teams, positive regression in Mike's case and negative regression in Brendan's case. I mentioned earlier that I am now a little bit more prone to give Brendan the benefit of the doubt as I probably should have been in the first place. However, I do still have mostly the same opinion on the build of his team, which is very offense uh, focused. So I expect negative regression for him. Um, And again, as we've mentioned for Mike, some positive regression. That being said, I think Brendan's team is better than I gave him credit for originally. And I do expect this to be a close matchup, given that Mike will still be without Cabrian Hayes and Fernando Tatis Jr. for at least half the week. Um, Ultimately, I'm going to predict that Brendan has a hot start preventing Mike from coming out of his week one dud and puts up a steaming hot 4-0 record to start the year, which is a complete 180 on my bold prediction from last week. But that's why we call him bold. And uh, I don't necessarily think that a 4-0 start, again, totally changes my opinion on his team, but I think that he might be getting some favorable matchups early with uh, with catching Andrew's team, who got auto-drafted, and then now catching Big Money Mike's team, who has a lot of injuries.
1: So I think we just is- have to... <laughs> I think we just have to accept that Brendan is just the Tampa Bay Rays at this point. He's going to put out a good team no matter what happens.
0: Yeah. That's a pretty good analogy. Uh, Tell me on the other hand, Jake, who do you have or what matchup do you have as your worst for the upcoming week?
1: I have Jerwin versus JC. And this really just comes down to Jerwin is missing a good chunk of his team. And JC is coming off of a week where he scored the most points in the entire league. So I, I think that JC rolls here and he probably goes into next week looking looking pretty good at
0: 4-0. Yeah, that's a good pick. I have my matchup with Eddie gone forever versus number one contender. Uh, While my team certainly didn't light the world on fire during this week one matchup between you and I, I think there's something to be said about the performance that my team put up in spite of not start, intentionally not starting a second baseman and getting a negative 31 point performance from one of my relievers, Anthony Bass, who is supposed to be the closer for the Miami Marlins, but couldn't close a lid to save his life. Uh, essentially, I think there were two main takeaways for my team. One, I think it's going to take some time for it to round into, into form as neither John, Jonathan India or Marcus Semien will actually pick up second base eligibility until our third matchup, which unfortunately means that I am going to ride without a second baseman in my lineup once again. But once my team does shape up, I think it's going to be a force. And the second takeaway I have is learn your fish for baseball. Trout equals good. Bass equals bad. And tapia equals the budget version. I'm actually referring to tilapia with that last one. Rymel tapia and tilapia, the fish that you eat. To provide some analysis on Eddie's team, I think it showed exactly what we expected in the first matchup, which is that his starting pitching isn't nearly at the level it needs to be to compete. My guess is ultimately knowing how the trade market works in our league, that he is going to be starved out of the starting pitcher trade market until he's ultimately forced to overpay for a starting pitcher. Because one, nobody offers quality starting pitching at what you would expect as a reasonable value, or or I should say at least that doesn't usually happen. And two, I think he's going to be forced to make a move unless he pretty much wants to rule himself out of serious competition early in the season. On a positive note for Eddie's team, I still think he has a great offense. And I think he's likely going to be able to use some of those pieces in that offense to target starting pitching through the trade market. So that is my worst matchup heading into week two. Let's quickly fire through our matchup predictions for the upcoming week. And just as a recap from last week, I went four and two with my picks. Jake, I believe you went three and three. Does that sound right?
1: Yeah, it's three and three.
0: So pretty close there. Let's just go through them. Number one contender versus gone forever. Me versus Eddie. Who do you have winning that matchup?
1: I'm going to go with you. Uh, I I don't really trust uh, Eddie's pitching right now. So I I think your offenses are comparable. So that, I think that could, that'll give you the edge this week.
0: Yep, I picked myself there. Uh, Cleveland White Males versus Big Money Mike. I already alluded that I have Brendan coming out of this matchup. I think you alluded that you maybe have Mike coming out, but I can't remember. Who do you have winning this matchup?
1: Uh, I'm gonna pick Brendan. Um, okay. I'm not gonna pick against him two weeks in a row. And I, <laughs> his team definitely over his team performed a lot better than I thought the first week. And i um, he's he's rolling pretty well right now. I think so. I I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with. I'm going to stick with Brendan. I'm not going to pick against him two weeks in a row.
0: Okay. I have a feeling that we're, we are on our way to uh, having all of the same picks. Who do you have for your matchup with Jordan?
1: All right. I'm going upset alert. I'm saying Jordan is going to pull it off this week. He's got more. Uh, I'm going to be missing. Cattel Marte. Um, he's, he has more starts than I do. Uh, I think this is the week Jordan pulls off the upset.
0: All right, you surprised me because I thought you were going to pick yourself based on your strong Week One performance, and you did not go that route. I guess I'm obviously spoiling my pick by saying that I have you in that matchup. Uh, Jordan's team is good; Uh, it's a lot better than I expected it to be. Like I thought, he was kind of taking like I I thought he had a lot of upside with the pitching that he drafted, but I also thought that there was a lot of inherent risk with the pitching that he drafted. But it obviously seemed to work out okay for him in Week One, so uh, I think it'll be close. But I think that you're going to pull you're going to pull out the matchup uh, once again for kind of rolling to you know a top of the standings finish through two matchups. So let's move on to the fourth matchup: Team Andrew Baum versus Pine Run Market. Who do you have in that matchup?
1: Uh, I'm going to go with Nick here. Uh, maybe it's partially due to the to the trade that just happened, but Nick's team's looking a little better, I think, heading into this week.
0: Yeah, I made my pick for this before the trade that just happened, and I still picked Nick. So obviously I'm not going to change that now that Bombs' lineup is obviously weaker. But yeah, I think Nick did what he needed to do to get the job done during week one. I think he has another soft matchup in week two. So I think he should probably get rolling as, as we're coming out of the first couple weeks to start the season. So next one we have is team C Deamer, Courtney versus TP Prez, Sam. I have Courtney winning this matchup for basically what you said earlier. Her team just looks like a monster early in the season. Who do you have?
1: Yeah. I, I said before I got Courtney in this one too. I think it'll be a good matchup. I just, I can't see, I can't see anyone beating Courtney. Right now, with the way that her team is going, even though she didn't score the top of the league uh, this past week, but overall, I, the, with the way that her offense is clicking, and uh, even the pitching looks like it's it's going to hit on a few guys like Musker and Wheeler. I just I can't see I can't see anyone beating her right right now.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Her team definitely looks really strong, and you already spoiled your pick for our last matchup: JC versus Testicular Torkelson or Jerwin. You picked JC. I'm going to agree with you there. Uh, I've been hyping up JC in our first few episodes to start the season. I'm not going to stop now. His team proved me absolutely right when I predicted that he would not only win, but put up the most points in the league through the first matchup. So I'm kind of riding the, the, the JC hype train right now. I have a lot of confidence in his team and his ability to beat Jerwin this week. So I think we went opposites on one pick, which is your matchup. You pick Jordan. I pick you, but I think we're the same on the rest. So let's yeah, see if we just in the
1: upcoming weeks.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: not...
0: it, it'll I don't know that it will change because I think we'll probably start to get a feel for just how good teams are. And I guess it'll be matchup dependent. Like if you have two good teams playing each other or two bad teams playing each other, that's probably where you're start... you'll you'll see some opposition. But I think. As the, as the season ages, it'll become clear who's a really good team, who is a really bad team. And some of those picks you'll probably never hear us disagree on. But these early ones are fun to kind of see what what people think about other teams in the league. So interested to keep track of these matchup prediction records moving forward. You already let us know uh, the league history fact of the week, which is that Sam and Courtney are 4-4 four and four against each other all time. And I guess they're going to break that tie in this coming week. So we'll have to uh, circle back to that next week and see who gets the upper hand. Let's uh, let's wrap up with some news and notes as we always do. And let's first talk about injuries. So Cabrian Hayes could tell, or Cabrian Hayes, I should say with a hand, Catel Marte with a hamstring James Paxton, who you were excited about last week. He is now out for the season and, who knows? He might be done for the career with, for his career. He's going down with Tommy John surgery. I had JD Martinez listed on here with with a uh, COVID or COVID-like symptoms, but he was quickly taken off the IL today and crushed three home runs. So I think you're taking an early victory lap, as well as JC is for saying that he is going to be a really good value this year. Fernando Tatis with his shoulder, they all developed new injuries with, the, again, the exception of J.D. Martinez, who who is already back, and illnesses and were placed on the injured list this past week. Which among these guys and their injuries was the biggest blow, uh, do you think, Jake?
1: Uh, probably Tatis, just because he's the biggest talent among these guys. Um, and I could see this kind of lingering during the season, even when he's back. Uh, it's a big re-injury risk. Anytime you're talking about a shoulder, anytime you're dealing with a shoulder injury, um, those are also known to impact power production. Notably uh, Nolan Arenado last year was playing with a shoulder injury um, not all shoulders are not all shoulder injuries are created equal. So maybe this one's not as bad. It definitely looked pretty bad, but maybe it's not. Um, but it is still, still a risk. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of little muscles in there that you're, you're risking when one of them is even a little bit compromised. So it's, I think it can linger even, even when he's on the field and it could be a re-injury risk going forward.
0: Yeah. I definitely think the re-injury risk is higher than you would like it to be for Tatis Jr. After he opted not to, and understandably so, opted not to get surgery that would presumably end his season or basically take him out until the playoffs. Uh, I don't blame him for doing that because I think what they're trying to do, it's like a six month recovery. so They're probably trying to push it until the off season so that he wouldn't actually miss any time besides maybe some spring training next year. Uh, I don't blame him, but it certainly makes probably the Padres as well as fantasy managers pretty nervous about the re-injury risk. I would agree that he is probably the biggest blow one because like you mentioned, he's a first round talent. It's always tough to lose those guys. And two, because Unlike Cabrian Hayes, or I know hamstring injuries can kind of linger too, but I don't think it's as severe as a case as Tatis with his dislocated shoulder for Cattell Marte. I think that these guys' injuries are less likely to impact them over the rest of the season um, than Tatis' shoulder injury. So I think he was definitely the biggest blow. I would agree. George Springer, who was already on the IL due to an oblique strain, has developed a quad injury. That may keep him on the IL for longer than initially uh, expected. AJ Puck will now exclusively pitch out of the bullpen for the for the foreseeable future. Jake, does AJ Puck have any fantasy value given this news?
1: I, I don't think so. He is. I mean, he's he's a fine reliever to have on your team, but like I don't see him being an impact reliever, uh, especially since I believe his velocity is down, which is which is kind of his big selling point. But yeah, I I mean, I I just kind of think he's just another reliever at this point. As everybody probably knows, I'm not, I don't value relievers very highly, so I don't really think he has much fantasy value. Yeah, and he he just can't stay healthy. Like I think he was put
0: on the injured list with like a left, and I think he's a lefty, so probably his throwing arm, a left bicep strain recently. Yeah, yeah, he's
1: left-handed, so it would be his throwing arm.
0: Yeah, so shame for AJ Puck, who once. a lot of once had a lot of people look at him as somebody having a super high ceiling. I just, I don't think it's there anymore. Uh, I think you would basically have to ignore it from this point on until he would otherwise show you that he has kind of regained the ability to reach, you know, what once thought, once a lot of people thought was his ceiling. So on another note, Zach Collins will be Lucas Giolito's personal catcher, which is not necessarily fanny fantasy relevant in and of itself. But the implications of it being that Yasmani Grandal will catch all the other pitchers, which in effect rules out Yermeen Mercedes out of any potential time share at catcher. Does this make you think that Yermeen Mercedes fantasy value will only prove to be a fad since he's probably only going to remain a UT utility only hitter for the long haul this season?
1: Yeah, he's a fun player, and it's it's been cool to see him hit the hit some of the moonshots that he's had And because he's, he's a nice story. But at the end of the day, and here goes my, my fantasy ageism again, uh, I'm going to bet against the 28-year-old rookie remaining fantasy relevant, especially as a utility-only player.
0: A little bit of an age difference, but Jake Cronenworth did something similar last year. I think he was, what, 26 or 27 when he came onto the scene, and, and he remained a pretty strong option through the fantasy season. But he also picked up eligibility. I think second base shortstop, he might've picked up an outfield spot by the end of the season. Mercedes looks like he's going to stick at DH only. Uh, He basically can't play anywhere on defense. The White Sox have come out and said that really. (laughs) So unless he continues to absolutely mash, I think he's going to be hard to, I think in Nick's case, he was maybe hoping to pick him up and trade him. I don't necessarily know that there's going to be a lot a hot market for a UT only guy that's never going to pick up any eligibility elsewhere, but who knows, you know, he could continue to mash. He could stick around. He could be an asset, but let's talk about the final player. And it also is from next team Christian Javier. He was optioned to the alternate site and li- likely will not be called up again until the Astros need a fifth starter, which won't be until their weekend series with the angels set to begin almost two weeks from now on April 22nd. Jake, are all of Nick's pitchers destined to be optioned to the alternate site?
1: Uh, Nick Anderson and Lazardo are probably safe, but I mean, we kind of knew it was coming. We kind of knew coming into the season that a lot of these younger pitchers would have innings limits or teams would do things like this where they'd send them down or maybe they would give them like a phantom IL stint with some sort of soreness so they could uh, take like a take like a week off or something. But uh, it's not totally surprising. Just I think we kind of knew this was coming. With a lot of these kind, with a lot of these types of types of guys, and Nick has a lot of these, a lot of these younger pitchers who would be susceptible to this.
0: Yeah, and I agree. I think Nick Anderson would be very safe from being sent down, considering he's on the sixty-day IL. Ian Anderson, on the other hand, Ian Anderson. If he were to struggle very badly, which I don't foresee, it's not totally out of the question that he could be sent down, but not likely. I was just kind of making a joke that we first saw Sixto Sanchez be sent down to the alternate site. On Knicks team now we're seeing Christian Javier be sent down. Which you mentioned, it was planned, uh, so not a shocker, and definitely not due to performance. He's pitched well so far, but thought it was interesting that they kind of view Javier as their fifth starter that they want to keep the workload down for, and, and they're not afraid to option him to do so. So that uh, just about wraps up our third episode of the Fantasy Baseball Edition of the Best Player Wins Podcast. <laughs> Hope you guys enjoyed the content that we brought this week. Looking forward to bringing you some new content next week. And uh, yeah, we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again for listening. And we will see you on the next one.
1: Here.